All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Daniel Davis, of course, the great whistleblower from the Afghan war in 2012. And uh, here he is writing again at 1945.com. It's the digits one nine and then spelled out 45. I wish they would figure that out one way or the other. Anyway, uh, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's going good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Happy to have you here. Oh, I should have said uh, you were U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. You were in Iraq War One, Iraq War Two, and Afghanistan. And that's why you know so much about driving tanks around and things like that. Um, I do have a little bit of experience with that, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, and the book is The 11th Hour in 2020 America, which is really great. And I do hope that people read it. Uh, Defense Priorities is where you're a fellow, things like that. Okay, now, uh, the subject at hand is the war on the ground in Ukraine. And I guess my first uh, question for you, because I have been, well, I have way too many jobs. I'm very distracted, but probably anyway, I would not be paying that too close of attention to the actual step-by-step uh, -step in the battles, other than the major steps in the progress of the war. In part because, you know, I don't know nothing about that stuff, you know, really. But secondly, I don't know who to believe. So I wonder, first of all, what kind of media you're consuming. Uh, we could all just go with what the Kagans want us to know over at the Institute <laughs> for the Study of War. Obviously, you got the moon of Alabama's got a real sharp eye, but there must be a hundred different telegram channels and God knows what going on. So I wonder what you're looking at in order to help form your conclusions about all this stuff. Yeah, I, I am looking at a, a just a ton of different sources because it it is so difficult to discern, you know, truth from fiction, from misinformation, disinformation, partial information. Uh, so I, I look at lots of Russian Telegram channels. Uh, I look at some Ukraine channels. Of course, nearly all of the Western media comes straight from the uh, Ukrainian uh, general staff. So you know, you can take that for what it's worth. Um, but I, I have found that what comes out of official uh, Kiev, what comes out of official Moscow is just almost completely worthless because they, they will both just say whatever they want to be the truth, not what it is. But when you get down into the to the granular level and you, you see um, a couple of especially have stood out, uh, there is a, a an Austrian colonel that's, that's actually active duty in the Austrian uh, army. Uh, who has uh, Colonel Reisner, I believe his name is, uh, has done almost from the outset of the war about every month or two uh, the the absolute hands down best tactical scenario and description of what has happened on the ground, and he has been proven right on all of this stuff. There's actually also, ironically, a, a, a Russian blogger. There's a number of Russian bloggers that are actually pretty honest about things. They don't hesitate talking about when they have failed, when their side has failed, and when their side is successful. And again, it's it's who's built the best track record. And so far, uh, it's a little embarrassing that none of the 
sides on the West uh, are in like the top 75%. They're like in the bottom 25% in terms of what turns out to be accurate. And But here's, here's one of the things you can do is that when you see, you know, what is happening on the ground, uh, there is not too much difference in descriptions about where the front lines are, et cetera. The big difference is the definitions and the interpretations. In the West, it's uniformly all negative Russia, all pro-Ukraine, making everybody think that things are going well. Uh, and that's just that's just not the case. Um, it's much, much more complicated than that. And, and so I, I think that based on my personal combat experience in armored warfare, the fact that I was a second-in-command of an armored cavalry squadron in, in Germany, spent time on the border, preparing to fight Soviet forces, uh, you know, did all kinds of maneuvers, just, you know, hundreds of days over my career in Germany and Europe. So I think I've got a pretty good idea what's going on. And I, I, I think because of that, I, I have a better, I, a better eye to be able to see when someone's, you know, basically blowing smoke, uh, when they're saying something that's just not, it just doesn't pass the, the smell test, so to speak. Um, and overall, I think that I've, my, you know, my assessments have been pretty much, uh, pretty much on track uh, from what I've been able to gather over time. I'd say so. Well, now here's the thing, and I don't know what your position was on this back then, if I knew it then or if I just forget, but I know that essentially everyone, including the Russians, well, seemingly including the Russians, but definitely including the Americans, thought that the Russians were going to steamroll right over the Ukrainian military, that they would be from the very beginning stages backing an insurgency against the Russians rather than a state army. Now, here we are yep. uh, two thirds of the way through September, still talking about this war and the latest news, at least on the from the American and, and Western interpretation, is that the Ukrainians are making major gains, got the Russians on the run. But. You have a recent yeah. piece says that's not so simple. So, yeah, um, yeah it's not. It's it's uh, that's that's an inaccurate view, uh, or maybe an incomplete view. I'll, I'll put it at. But there is no question. It is it is absolutely accurate that Ukraine made a bold stroke in the Kharkiv area and made substantial gains, caught Russia completely by surprise, and and genuinely did make a lot of territorial gains. But the big, big difference comes in um, what was actually accomplished uh, and, and what, what the status is right now. What Ukraine did, it wasn't just everybody likes to talk about what happened in the Kharkiv area. Nobody wants to talk about what happened in the Kherson area in the West. And there's a reason for that. Ukraine now, now, slow launched, down just a second here. So, okay. So we have so when we talk about Kharkiv, this is. If I understand it right, this is essentially just outside of what's officially considered Luhansk in the northeast of the country. And then Kherson is, or however you pronounce these, the wife says Kharkiv. I don't know how she says Kherson. I think she just calls it Kherson. <laughs> anyway, this is just northwest of Crimea on the way to Odessa, um, in fact. And so there were sort of twin offensives going on at the same time is what you're saying. That's correct. Yeah, they were actually sequential. It started in the south in Kharkiv, uh, and sorry, in Kherson, and then uh, second one launched, uh, I want to say, a week later in the Kharkiv area. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, th this is one of the ways you could really tell what's actually happening. Uh, when the 
the Kyrcelon, which was first, was launched. Yeah, as you may know, I, I've been writing for weeks ahead of this battle that it was going to be disaster for the Ukraine side. They shouldn't launch it. Uh, they had, tactically speaking, they everything was going to be against them. And all the things that I put on there is exactly what turned out to happen. They had to pull out of covered and concealed positions. They had the Ukraine side had defensive positions that had been built for months, uh, and they were pretty successful in, in fending off the uh, Russian artillery, etc. But to attack the Russians, they had to come out of those positions and they cross what they call the steppe, which is basically a large open area in uh, meadows, etc., with no overhead cover, making them completely vulnerable to uh, Russian artillery, rocket fire, and airstrikes. And they were just annihilated. And you see the Ukrainian side, the whole time they were saying, well, Operation security. We're not going to talk about what's going on down there until the thing's done. Uh, and no Western uh, reporters are going to be allowed into the area because, you know, national, national security is involved, et cetera. But you see that when they actually did gain some ground in the Kharkiv in the north, they were throwing videos left and right. And they were telling everybody every single thing that was going on because they actually did have some success there. Uh, but when you look at what happened, and this is what I cover in the piece you're referring to in 1945, uh, Russia had been since May, or really since since April, had been conducting what's called an economy of force mission in the north and in the south to where they put as few troops as they feel they need to to keep Ukraine from redeploying all their forces to fight in the Donbass, which the Russians had declared is their primary of effort. Now, that makes sense for a while. but because Russia was taking this super go-slow process, after a while, Ukraine kind of figured out what the status was, what was going on, and then they very covertly, and this is where they genuinely deserve some credit, uh, they built up some combat power in both the south and in the north. Uh, and it, it, South, everybody knew, because Zelensky was telling people for three months that the attack was coming, which was part of the reason why it was beaten so badly. Uh, but no one knew that was, there was a big one coming in the north. And they succeeded in doing that. Now, Russia had foolishly, uh, their, their intelligence was terrible. They didn't see it coming. They weren't prepared for it. And they had uh, totally put their, it's not even reservists, it was like their National Guard or their local uh, militia, so to speak, on the northern part there. And then they thinned that out to send some of it down to Kherson. So there was a very small number of Russian troops up in that whole area, this you know, 3,000 kilometers, square kilometer area they're talking about. There was hardly any troops up there. So when Ukraine comes rolling in with this very large force uh, that was built with the very best, you know, that consolidated the best of the, you know, the armored and uh, artillery and, and drones and all kinds of other things that and training, they had trained up troops in, in Britain and some other places. They put the very best they had up in that area. And so it was not even a fair fight. It was like eight to one uh, on the attacker side against, the poorest of the Russian forces that were in that area. So it was completely reasonable and understandable from a military perspective why the Russians lost. Uh, but I will say that they actually recovered in fairly good order and went back to what's called the Oskal River, which is farther to the east uh, and beyond which the Ukrainian really, in fact, so far they have not been able to breach. So that's the new line over there. And there was somewhere between three and 4,000 kilometers on the other side of it that had been cleared out of Russians because the remainder of the Russians, they couldn't defend it, so they actually escaped to the north back to their, their side of the border. And that's kind of where the tactical stuff uh, has ended up. There's no gains in the south, and they, the Ukraine side of tremendous losses, and there are substantial gains in the north. 
But then if you want, we can talk about what that means now. Well, and as far as there's substantial gains in the North, you talk about how there's this sort of gendarme force, however you pronounce that there, in uh, that kind of just retreated, gave that ground. But did they suffer major casualties along with the loss of all that territory, the way the Ukrainians suffered casualties in Kherson, or they really just turned around and left? It, they did not just turn around and left. That was another thing that the Russian side deserves some military credit because they conducted a fighting withdrawal. They did not just, you know, basically just uh, panic and turn and run. Because if they had it, then they would have been slaughtered even more than they were. They suffered a lot of casualties. That That is genuine. Mm-hmm. But they also inflicted a lot of casualties. Uh, by some reports, the, the Ukraine side suffered almost as many, if not more, casualties than the Russian side did. And so they paid for that territory with, with quite a bit of their, their own blood there. Mm-hmm. Uh Here's the net net, though. Because of what they they concentrated all their striking power for those two offenses, they don't have much left. And so yeah, that's the, what I was about to ask is, you is, you know, where uh, are they at in terms of reserves and everything? Yeah, because see what what the common narrative is that, man, Ukraine's about to go on the you know, they're just going to keep rolling Russians out and they're going to drive them out. And there's almost no chance that happens. There's very little chance that that happens because. Battlefield math actually comes into play here. When you take a look at the sum total of everything that the West, and especially the United States, has given Ukraine from the beginning, you you take that against what Ukraine has admitted that they've lost in terms of tanks, artillery, uh, rocket launchers, etc., and troop. Well, they haven't said troop numbers, but they have said the equipment. Um, And then you see what they had in these two offensives. You see there's just not that much left. They don't have enough to drive out Russia where they're entrenched in the Donbass, for example, or even in the Kyrgyzstan area. That's why they had such a hard time, because Russia was prepared for that one, and they had more troops down there. They had reserves and everything else. Um, And so now then, you know, Russia has been moving more reserves in there. That's why they stopped the the Ukrainians at the Oskal River. They haven't gone any further than that. Uh, because now it gets a lot, lot harder. They caught the, the Ukraine caught the Russians by surprise and had a huge success there. But that surprise is over. Now it's back into that grinding phase that really both sides have been on for a while. Mm-hmm. And now I was reading at Moon of Alabama blog, which for people who don't know, it's this brilliant military analyst from Germany named Bernard. And that's some lyrics from a song is why the website is called that. Um but it, it could just as very well be like some good old boy Green Berets from Alabama. But no, no, no. It's a German uh, analyst. And he was saying that, look, in this part of Luhansk, the Russians were holding this one piece of territory there near um, Izium because they were trying to use that to stage attacks on this other area near there. Right. And that exactly just wasn't right. working because the Ukrainians were dug in so deeply there. And so they were giving up on that. So that was all the more reason for them to have drawn down their force that they had uh, previously been attempting to do a thing and had changed their mind about that already before this withdrawal. Is that right? I'm not, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that the Russians had given up on it. They were not being successful. They had planned on using Izium to attack the slavyansk kramatorsk uh, conglomerate, which is what they're calling that area. Uh, this was the last two big areas uh, of the Donbass that they've been trying to capture for a long time. They were trying to do a pincer movement where they came in from the south and then came down from Izium in the north and completed off. But they they have just not been able to break through. That's that's part of the uh, you know the grinding nature of this that Russia hadn't been successful. But in addition to 
not being able to use it as a launch up point. They were using it as a resupply point. Um, so they were bringing, you know, uh, uh, whether it's uh, artillery shells, supplies, other ammunition, uh, fuel. They were running that stuff through uh, Isium. And so with the loss of that now, it's, it's a pretty significant loss because now that means they have to go a lot farther uh, to get stuff into the rest of their church in the Donbass, especially. And, you know, of course, they lost all the stuff that they had there because they didn't have any kind of a chance to, to you know, move that stuff out. So they, they did lose a lot there. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Yeah, I'd read, I'm sure the numbers were probably exaggerated, but I read that, you know, about some of the equipment that they had taken, Russian tanks and so forth. Um, but now, so I guess some of the war skeptics in the initial reaction to the news of this major, um, you know, forward advance by the Ukrainians uh, near Kharkiv there in, in Luhansk was, oh, no, now what's Russia going to do? They're going to have to call up a full-scale, uh, you know, mobilization and conscription and stop calling it a special police action military operation like, uh, you know, Harry Truman and instead right. call it a war. Uh, maybe use nuclear weapons, they're saying. Um, in fact, that's the hawks who keep bringing that up, I think, just to try to demonize Putin. I don't know. But uh, I guess the question is, it sounds like what you're saying is, nah, they don't necessarily need to double down at all. They keep doing what they're doing. This was a strategic retreat, and you could call it you know, a tactical loss. But um, in terms of their overall war effort, you don't seem to think that it's been diminished whatsoever, while at the same time, you're saying the Ukrainians expended a hell of a lot in order to make this happen, especially with their, you know, kind of distraction attack on Kherson at the same time or right before. It. Well, I, I, I don't I don't I think you have to, to you know, to really to give Ukraine its credit there. They did inflict a pretty significant tactical defeat on the Russians up there. So I won't say it didn't matter. It did matter because it's, it's cost them some trouble mm -hmm. now. And now that they the reason they set up is. Uh, economy of force missions in the north and the south was so that they could focus on the Donbass. Well, now they lost the northern part of that, and so now that Ukraine can reinforce the Donbass. Now mm -hmm. it's going to make that one even harder. So the, the the net net of all this, though, because Ukraine basically expended its striking power, 
And and I, I put in this this two piece article you're referring to here. A lot of the reasons why Zelensky really had to move now. There's several reasons for that. Number one, Russia was just about to conduct a uh, plebiscite in the south in the Kyrgyzstan area that was going to be the precursor to annexing the south of the part of Ukraine uh, into the Russian Federation itself. And they wanted to act before that happened, because uh, even though no one would recognize it, it's still a lot more difficult once something's actually been annexed into your country. Uh, the second reason, though, is because just before they launched that offensive, there was uh, about a week before a big meeting in Ramstein Air Base with all the Western defense ministers to decide what they want to give to Ukraine in the next tranche. Well, there's been some concern that if they don't, Ukraine side doesn't show enough progress, then the West is going to start saying, hey, why do we, should we keep giving you all this stuff when you're going to lose anyway? Right. So they wanted to demonstrate that, no, 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 we, we, we really can. So we're going to show you this big victory, which is why they played it up so big to make it sound like they drove, you know, they drove the Russian frontline troops out of contested areas, whatever, when it was really nothing like that at all. In fact, they didn't drive Russia out of anywhere where it was contested. They're still being moved back in those areas. Um, and then the other reason, the other thing that uh, is the uh, fall rains are going to begin pretty soon, and it's going to make it just extremely difficult uh, to move armored forces across open terrain, which they had to do. Uh, because once it happened, they call it uh, the Rasputita, I think, Putista, sorry, uh, in, in that area, which basically when the rains come in the fall and when the snows melt in the, in the spring, it just turns it into just this miry muck that's really hard to move across. And you just can't make it surprising maneuver because then you get stuck at it and then you're just dead because artillery is just going to, you know, hammer you. So he had to move before all that. Now that, the, you know, the, it's now almost in that rainy season, they've used their striking power. Probably nobody's going to do anything big for the rest of this year because now winter's coming, uh, you know, and you've got energy problems and everything else. So I don't think this is going anywhere until the winter comes hard and the ground freezes and makes maneuver possible again. Mm-hmm. All right. Now on Twitter, there's this whole kind of village of hawkish, you know, supposed open source type analysts led by Bellingcat, which is obviously just MI6, you know, front. But there are others kind of like that. And I saw some of those guys discussing about how, well, you know, it was the harm missiles, the American, I guess, anti-radar missiles that they use that gave them the Ukrainians this extra reach over the Russians and how the, you know, sort of a separate question from what you're saying about, yeah, but they're running out of men, but the men that they do have, they've had a chance now to train them up on all this American weaponry. And that's really what's made the difference is the transformation of the Ukrainian military into very much a Western force. Do you think that's really right? No, I don't think at all. Without question, they're better than they were but they are still miles away from being a Western anything. And it's also very telling. Look at the weapons that have been given. I actually looked again just, just a couple of hours ago at the sum total of everything the U.S. has given from February 24th on. And you see millions of rounds of small arms ammunition, uh, tens of thousands of various kinds of anti-armor, anti-air missiles, etc. Uh, and 126, 155-millimeter howitzers. 20 105 millimeter howitzers, 16 HIMARS, and then uh, 200 uh, uh, armored personnel carriers from the Vietnam era that we don't even use anymore. So basically, and, and Humvees, uh, so the junk that we don't even fight with anymore. 
What that tells you is there's no tanks, there's no self-propelled artillery, and there's not even large numbers of the HIMARS or anything else. All that is defensive in nature. That does not even give you the the technical capacity to large to launch a theater level offensive that could drive people out of contested area like the Donbass, for example. So that tells you that the West is not really thinking that this is going to be won. I think that they just want it to continue to go on so that Russia continues to get chewed up. And uh, I, I don't think that they mind if this goes on for years. I, I, just look at what they're doing and what they're saying. The, the, uh, the, the Biden administration did get in uh, to Defense One, a publication last week, that they have four uh, objectives in here, one of which is to harm Russia, none of which is to help Ukraine win. Nobody's thinking. I don't think any in reality, anybody in the administration thinks Ukraine can win. They, I think they know the reality that I do. But they do know that with all this weaponry we've given, it'll just keep the fighting going on almost indefinitely mm. because Russia is not strong enough so far without mobilizing to continue to just sweep across and capture Ukrainian territory. Man, that's something where they forget to even lie and pretend they have an end game other than just yeah, cheering these yeah, people up. Yeah, it's just harm Russia and uh, not let them lose, but mm-hmm. not to win. And so we're not giving them the stuff they would need to win, which is good because we shouldn't, because that would mean that we're going to diminish our own national security. And right. that's why nobody else in Europe has given their frontline tanks or self-propelled artillery or armored personnel carriers. There's a reason why they haven't done that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in fact, I was just reading uh, Aaron Monte's new piece and he quotes uh, Lindsey Graham. This I had missed this from the beginning of August saying we're going to continue to fight to the last person there. As long as we give them the weapons, you know, to fight them to the last Ukrainian. I mean, they say it themselves. It's really incredible. It's very discouraging to me because they, they, they love to chest beat and they love to pound their, you know, arrogance and presumption and say, yeah, we're going to get against the Russians. We're going to help the Ukrainians who themselves also, they're the, the Zelensky regime, et cetera. They are also a part of this so i don't diminish that yeah. but the net result is we don't care how many ukrainians die in the process we don't care about their cities getting shelled i do that's what's motivated me from the beginning is that i want to see them more of them live the people who just want to have a normal life and yet they're caught in the middle of this and they're the ones that are getting blown up every day yeah well you know it's funny because ever since i wrote fools there in the afghanistan book which you're in of course and which i keep telling the story because it's a good one that that's where the title comes is from a conversation between you and me um, about how uh, and, you know, I'll give speeches about that book and I always kind of take time to mention because it is important. You know, I don't know. Uh, it's not like a disclaimer or spin or anything. I just feel like mentioning it that when bin Laden talked about, you know, what we want to do is replicate the 80s war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union only this time against the United States. A million people were killed by the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And here bin yep. Laden is essentially saying, who cares? Kill all the Afghans, let God sort them out, as long as we can bog down and break the Americans. And this is the point of view of Osama bin Laden. Well, then you got the Americans saying that exact same thing this year. At the end of last year, at the beginning of this year, and continuing through... Yeah, we want to replicate Afghanistan in the 1980s. <laughs> Not Afghanistan since 2001, see? That's different. But Afghanistan in the 1980s, where a million Afghans were killed, where Ronald, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan were willing to fight to the last Afghan, 
to bog down and and break the Soviet Union. Bill Casey too. Um, that oh yeah no that's perfectly fine. We'll just write that in the New York Times that that's exactly our point of view. That's the U.S. government, the Joe Biden administration, quoting Bin Laden, quoting Reagan. And of course, we're, we're going to we're going to couch that in all the flowery, lovely language of uh, freedom and democracy. This is about defending democracy and about ensuring the freedom and the territorial integrity of the people of Ukraine. Like we're actually doing it for them, and we're not. We're not doing it for them, Scott. I mean, I think that's plaintively obvious. Yeah, it's really sick, man. Um, and now, so listen. Since Ukraine cannot win the war and the Russians, as you say, can't win it without a massive, I mean, let's say they wanted to take all the Donbass and all the way to Kherson. And I mean, to me, from a government program point of view, it only makes sense at that point that they would try to take everything east of the Dnieper River or something. But that would take this massive effort. And then even then, the Ukrainians are going to give up as long as they still have West Ukraine to fight from. They're going to keep fighting all the way back to the old border again if they have it their way as long as they have American support um, to do it. So we really yep. are stuck in a real problem here, man. Um, and I wonder, in fact, you know, I was going to ask you anyway, but this sort of leads to that. How many people have been killed in this thing already? And it seems to me like some of the claims of Russian casualties, for example, must just be absolutely fantastically exaggerated. You know, they've been claiming tens of thousands of dead Russians from almost the very beginning. But then I don't even know what the Russians admit their casualties are and how much higher you think they might be than that or anything like that. Yeah. But also there's the number of dead Ukrainian civilians caught in the crossfire of this thing. I know a lot of people have fled and that's its own tragedy, yeah. all the refugees. But as far as civilians being blown to bits in all these artillery exchanges and airstrikes and all of the rest. I mean, how do we know or have any kind of reasonable estimate of the death toll here? You know, I, I don't think we have any, I guess, plausible or, or anything close to being official, but it, it just looking at what, the, how the combat is being taken place, Russia's objective was demilitarization of Ukraine, and they defined that as the destruction of the UAF, the Ukrainian Armed Forces. So even though they didn't capture a lot of territory, uh, since April, they did capture a number of significant cities. They did so by limiting the exposure to their their combat troops, their maneuver troops, their infantry force, etc., and uh, highlight their artillery, rocket, and airstrikes. So, you know, the the poor Ukrainian side was just relentlessly bombarded, just day after day, multiple times every single day, and you know they were suffering up to a thousand casualties per day. I mean, that's been going on for for a long time. I've I've seen what I consider some reasonable uh, estimates of somewhere around 190 to 200,000 Ukrainian total casualties. That's not all killed. Uh, and that's reasonable given what the Ukraine have periodically admitted. And now can you give us proportions losing. on that? How many have, are killed versus wounded there? Uh, <clears throat> some suggest, you know, upwards of 60, 70,000 uh, are dead and, and, you know, 180 or so, uh, wounded, uh, but again, these, hey, hey caveats included. Be, There's no way to be confident yeah. about this, but that's all I'm asking for is ballparks here to yeah, try to understand. I think that's, a, I think that's a, a 200, 250,000 total casualties, maybe 70, 50,000 killed, and then the rest wounded. 
based on how many artillery shells are going into where these troops are concentrated. I mean, because that's how, how you have it in there. Um, and, and on the Russian side, I mean, it, it, it just stands to reason. If the Russians have, depending on where in the front they are, a 10 to 20 to 1 uh, advantage in artillery, it stands to reason they're going to inflict five to 10 times more casualties than they receive because the Ukraine side simply doesn't have the fire to return. So they're not going to suffer as many casualties, but whatever the number is, it's got to be extraordinary. I mean, it's got to be tremendously high. Um, but I mean, could you guess, you know, between this many tens of thousands and that many? Tens yeah, of I, thousands? I, I bet, I bet it's, it's probably close to 50,000 itself. And there it could be uh, 10, 15,000 dead and, Maybe thirty-five thousand wounded. That's that's probably not yeah. unreasonable. Yeah. But I, I bet that's I bet that's less than half of, of what the Ukraine, maybe a third of what the Ukraine side has, just based on the battlefield's geometry and the battlefield math and how many shells are going in one direction and how many less are coming in the other direction. It just stands to reason that those numbers are going to be something close to being right. Mm. And all of the numbers that say that the Russians have lost fifty or seventy thousand dead and this kind of thing, those are all just come from the Ukrainian foreign ministry or defense or, ministry, or right? the, the British intelligence. That, that's, in, in my view, the worst organization that there is in terms of misinformation, intentional disinformation. I think they just they just produce fiction every day. I don't think there's anything behind what they say. I think they'll just say whatever they think they want in the, quote, information war, which they view as a legitimate battlefield, which means they'll say whatever they want to say to, to get the right. publics in the West to continue to support this stuff. But uh, I've seen, I mean, they've been wrong on nearly everything major from the very beginning, maybe from like April on. Uh, so I have very low uh, 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 validity in anything that comes out of the, the British intelligence. Yep, sounds about right. Okay, well, listen, I appreciate a good half hour from you here. It's a hell of a war. I mean, I guess from kind of a military nerd point of view, you must, in a way, love it, right, in terms of the just tanks versus this and that and the strategy and the battlefields and the different topography and all, like, that part of it, aside from the casualties. Yeah, this I, is, I, we I, haven't really had yeah. a state-on-state -state war like this since the Iran-Iraq war, really, right? Yeah, we really have. I mean, just you, you might can say Desert Storm, 100 hours worth. Kind of, but the, uh, that was so, you guys of, had such an advantage there compared to their old military. It sort of don't. This is much more evenly matched, isn't it? Uh, oh, without question. Yeah, there's yeah. No, no question about that. I mean, that's why I said 100 hours. I mean, we had, you know, I was in the one tank battle where it was genuinely force on force, one of the very few in the whole theater. Uh, but one of the few, I mean, we, we passed the first armor division through us and they basically had nothing to do afterwards because there were just weren't very many more Iraqi formations that were still fighting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is the, or I, I mean, I, you might even go back. Yeah. I guess the ran Iraq probably would be the last one where there was two evenly matched sides, even though they were bad, but lots of casualties that were in there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to your question there, I really do. I got to focus on that kind of stuff because otherwise if I start thinking too much about the human casualties in this and, and the cost it, it just i mean it'll just depression you can't even focus anymore because it's just yeah. so egregious i know it is it's absolutely horrible i didn't mean to make it sound fun i just i did i use the word fun all i meant was uh <laughs> you know I, yeah as a professional i do i mean i spend hours a day every single day trying to you know keep track of what's going on and check all sides to find out if i can have some idea what the truth is and um uh, yeah, from a professional side, uh, you know, I try to do the best I can. Right. And it is just a different kind of analysis than the 
uh, oh, the humanity part. You leave that to me, you know. <laughs> and you're good at that. Hell yeah, I'll leave the experts to that one. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, I'm so appreciative of your analysis and all your great writing and your time on the show again, Dan. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. All right, you guys, that is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis, the great heroic whistleblower of Afghanistan 2012 there, and uh, regular writer at 1945.com, senior fellow at Defense Priorities, and his great book is called The 11th Hour in 2020 America. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.